All right, let's do this. Peanut, if you're staying in the room, no talking. Welcome to the Photo Work Podcast, the talking and touchy-feely version of my book, Photo Work, 40 Photographers on Process and Practice. Hello, everyone. I'm Sasha Wolf, as usual, and recording from the home base in Woodstock, New York, uh, the home base on wheels. And I am joined, as usual, by my friend and producer, the one and only Michael Chauvin Dalton. Hello, Michael. Hi. Yeah, we got to keep that home base on wheels in case we need a fast getaway. Yes. Well, <laughs> I, I, there would be nothing fast about getting away. <laughs> First of all, you'd need a serious tow truck. <laughs> it would kind of give it away. <laughs> yeah. When the guy was delivering it, and he was in this huge, huge tow truck, and he was coming up the mountain, I'm on top of the mountain, he was going at like five miles an hour, and it really looked like he was going to start going backwards at any moment. So, <laughs> yep, it was stressful. I was gu- I was guiding him, and I'm looking in my rearview mirror, and I'm just like, uh oh, what happened? So no, uh, no future uh, Breaking Bad meth mobile lab uh, going on here. Um, <laughs> well, now that you mention it. I'm leaving all options open if this photo thing doesn't work out. That's right. Um, So, hi, and we're going to be trying now speed things up. Um, I'll talk really fast. Um, This is supposed to be a short intro. Yeah, but we're incapable of that, first of all. But um, (laughs) we have a great episode with David Benjamin Sherry, and this is... One of my favorite episodes, I loved mm-hmm. talking to David. There's something about him that's just, I actually was joking with you the other day that he needs his own podcast because he has a great voice. And Oh, good voice. Yeah. Yes. Good radio voice. Yes. There's something about the tone of his voice, the things he says, obviously, and the way he says them that I just found really so engaging. It didn't even matter what he was talking about, but he's a really interesting and intelligent and very sensitive person. Mm -hmm. And I think it made for a really wonderful episode. Yeah, it's a very personal episode. And I loved listening to the way David talks about his practice. Um, You know, we talk about process and practice a lot uh, on the Mm -hmm. show, obviously. And uh, there's just something about the way... He goes about making his work that I just sound so beautiful. Yeah, well, he's a very, very process-oriented person. And then mm-hmm. the way he brings his own sort of life story into the work and the politics of his life. And yeah, anyway, it was, it was really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I don't want to give anything away, but David in particular was talking about American monuments. And uh, I think I was just... Uh, knocked off my feet when I was hearing about how that work came into being. Yes, that was that was really interesting, among many other mm-hmm. things. Um, all right, well, the episode is long, so we'll keep it short. If you don't mind, Michael, please take it away. My pleasure, and here is your conversation with David Benjamin Sherry. David Benjamin Sherry, welcome to the Photo Work Podcast. It's it's great to have you on. I just want to say that I 
I've been sort of loved your work for just a really long time, but getting ready to talk with you today, as I always do, I you know did a particularly immersive deep dive and it has been so much fun. I've been living in the David Benjamin Sherry color palette and um, <laughs> and watching some interviews you've done and reading reading some interviews. And I've, I've enjoyed your voice and the things that you have to say very much. So anyway, it's, 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 I've already loved sort of talking with you, even though we haven't even begun. But thank you so much for, for being <laughs> here. <laughs> it's really my pleasure, Sasha. I, I, I can't thank you enough for inviting me to chat with you and um, to be on my first podcast. Um, oh, all right, never, a virgin. I've never done this before. Okay. Yeah, so, well, we'll be gentle. Um, I'm very excited. Okay, good. Um, well, let's begin as we always do. Or just tell the listeners about yourself and where you come from and where you are now and what that journey has, has been. Yeah, so um, I was born in 1981 in Long Island and in Stony Brook, New York. And actually, I was the youngest of four. My mom was stay-at-home mom, and um, my dad was running a trucking business that was in the family. And they pretty much, you know, my mom was like feminist, political, awesome, incredible woman. <laughs> that was like, I think it's time for me to go out and work a bit, so let's let's move upstate and get out of Long Island. So they moved up to Woodstock and, um, <laughs> which is kind of wild because that's where you are. Yep. And yeah, they moved to Woodstock and <clears throat> my mom began doing real estate upstate, you know, in 1981 Hudson Valley. So it was pretty amazing time up there culturally. And, and also just, there was a part of the, the town and energy that I think, remained from like let's say the concert or like just that kind of mm -hmm. vibe of like hippies and like that baby boomer generation that like dropped out and tuned in and stayed in Woodstock <laughs> yeah. um, or at, at least that was in the air I in, mean when I was tie-dye yeah in uh, so much tie-dye yeah so my mom met another woman when I was about five and my mom left my dad and it was like kind of a whole new world uh so I don't really remember much from before five, which is kind of strange, but <laughs> I think it was just like a lot of moving around and a lot of childhood kind of chaos or something. So I remember when my mom met Gloria and I had all of a sudden two moms and we'd spend half the week with one, with both of them and then half the week with my dad. So Gloria, who is my non-biological mother, which isn't really how I'd even refer to her, I would just refer to her as mom too. Um, or my aunt in those days mm -hmm. because it was a little bit different. Of course. Um, so Gloria was an artist. She grew up in Queens. Strange enough, she went to high school with my dad. My dad also went to high school with Robert Maplethorpe, which is kind of strange too. He didn't know who Maplethorpe was when I mentioned it. <laughs> but, um, but I was always kind of shocked to see Gloria in the same yearbook as my father's yearbook. I was just like, wait, so my mom, my new mom knows my dad like I didn't get it when I was a kid but they didn't know each other either so Gloria was an artist and a feminist kind of uh, her work was really about queerness and was she was you know in those days would refer to herself as you know a butch um, and she my mom was kind of not butch I guess so that's just like how 
I think in the eighties and nineties, people kind of more referred to themselves. I don't know if they still do necessarily, but Gloria just like really shook my life up and, and kind of saw that I was an artist at a young age and really helped me find my own path, uh, through art. And how lucky for you. I was so lucky. I Mm -hmm. mean, her home was just filled with like Goya reproductions and, and like this beautiful, like Judy Chicago, like huge, colorful, uh, pores and, and, and these bodily sculptures that resembled, you know, women and and bodies. And it, it was just, magical world for me to be in as at a young age. I knew I was gay when I was really young. I didn't really understand what that meant because mm-hmm. most of my mom's friends, you know, they click they quickly were kind of immersed in this upstate New York queer community. Like they were like best friends with like the B52s and like sold, you know, Keith from the Bees his house and like right. It was like this amazing time in the in like the you know, this is like probably in the early, late eighties, early nineties that they kind of were in this amazing community, but also at the same time, all these, all their gay male friends were dying. So mm-hmm. I kind of, of age, all the, of age. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Uh, so that kind of really shook me up as a kid and I didn't really understand like, Oh, if you're gay, then you die. You know, like I had this kind of yeah, naive, terrifying. naive, terrifying understanding of what being queer meant. And, I couldn't really understand that for, I mean, it, it definitely was, I think, traumatic for mm-hmm. me as a kid because not only that, like because of the culture at the time, like gay families weren't really, I mean, I'm sure they were around, but they weren't something that we knew anybody else, you know? Mm-hmm. So I learned about the closet from my mom's, you right, know, like right. it, it, our, our little home was like this safety nest of, of where we could all be ourselves. But outside of that, I felt very um, isolated and didn't really have a community until many years later. I just gave you a long, uh, that's okay. It was interesting. Childhood, yeah. <laughs> childhood kind of journey, but I went to Kingston high school. I went to public school out there and it was amazing. I had this incredible art teacher who really pushed me along. His name was, uh, Roger Spada, Mr. Spada. And he encouraged me to apply to RISD and I applied to RISD, which was really far out of what my family could afford. I mean, there's no college fund or anything. I was just like lower middle class. Family. Yeah. And, and RISD Working is class. a Rhode Island school of design, Rhode Island school of design, total private school, amazing, yeah. unbelievable college. Mm-hmm. When I found out about it, I was like, this is the college for me. This is yeah. where I want to go. And my moms were so supportive of me going to art school and wanting to live that. But also like, you need to go to a state school where you'll get, financial aid and you know we were working class family so we i would get financial aid and i did i got like full rides to all these great art schools in new york pratt and parsons sva but i was like i got into RISD. i i want to go there so it was a big decision and i actually went there had this amazing first year and i i studied graphic i, I went into graphic design for about one month i was like tracing my name over and over and I couldn't really do it. <laughs> and I took a photo class uh, and I'd taken photographs before, but I kind of worked in like painting and sculpture and drawing. And 
I don't know, design seem like, well, I mean, it's like working class family. Like you got to go to art school to get a job. So what are you going to, you know, you're, you can't like art isn't a job. You have to be like a designer or something. So that's why I went there with this like safety net of going to graphic design. But of course my best friend was like this dreamy, incredible painter. He, he got like the one full scholarship to RISD. So he was like, we were in the same kind of like income bracket. We just related to each other. His name is Terry Powers and we're still very close. He was like the most dreamy fine artist painter that I ever met. And just really, he knew that I was an artist and that like I needed to kind of follow something different. And I had this great teacher named Jenny Edwards, who I've stayed a little bit in touch with over the years. And she was my first photo one teacher. And after I took that class, she just pulled me aside and was like, what are you doing? <laughs> it's, you have to, you have to study this. You have to be in photography. Wow. And she, she really pushed me into it. And I, and I, it was a hard phone call to make to my mom's and, um, I did it and I, pushed through and had this incredible next three years of finding a lot about myself out through the camera, learning the tools and, and Steve Smith, who's an incredible professor. Yeah, I know uh, Steve. Wonderful. Steve yeah. was, so he was like my first large format teacher. I mean, he, he let me, I just like went in there like kind of doing things all wrong on my own clock. I'm like, oh, I'll figure out the large format camera myself. I don't want to listen to these boring lectures. Like I was just kind of this punk kid that like was against things but like mm -hmm. also really loved the history and naively kind of found find myself like you know what is it like 20 years later I'm like all I care about is like photo mm -hmm. history and also punking the medium a bit but um, well you grew up you were an adolescent I grew yeah. up yeah I was so young and I, you know I still was not out yet this is 1999 that I graduated high school and graduated from RISD in about 2003. So RISD was an incredible, it opened my doors to incredible artists that I'm still very close with today. And it gave me this kind of leverage of like, you know, back then RISD was just like this amazing art school that had, that was like, had this incredible foundation course where they really kind of break you down and you learn about the history of drawing and painting and two-dimensional design and and photography and I just like had and it was all analog you know so I was just I just went for it and had this incredible time I had some great internships like in between my final years at RISD like for instance I worked for David LaChapelle <laughs> wow which is pretty How bizarre pretty wild <laughs> very bizarre I mean at that point David LaChapelle was like doing something really crazy in photography and and I just like admired something like so pop about his yep. his whole world. And and again, I wasn't out, but I saw like something in that work that I, I, I just was like a closeted, you know, I just like broke a lot of hearts in college, like girlfriends that I feel terrible about still. But, yeah, you know, because I really played it like that I was straight i don't know why just a different time just i, I, that I don't think it's okay i don't think um you're alone <laughs> there many people have yeah you know yeah it's different for everyone you know i yeah. think it's a lot easier today for kids but it's still really hard for people across the world yeah, without different, a doubt. different countries and, yeah so and, and um, even places in our country and then you wound yeah, up at uh completely. yale right yeah so i went to yale i so I, yeah i assisted some different artists, moved through 
Uh, I worked for Justine Curlin for a bit, who is the the dreamiest, amazing person, supporter, lover of my work and me and and like mutual. She was just like this friend at this time in my life that I, and she was very encouraging of me to apply to Yale. I was like hustling my couple years out of RISD in New York. And I just like did a lot of stuff. I was kind of like constantly working, waiting tables, assisting photographers, trying, you know, trying to find my way into something in New York. And also bringing a box of photographs around Chelsea, which people don't do anymore. (laughs) And again, this is like 23 year old energy that I would never be able to do anymore. But, you know, because of that, I got into my first show at Chelsea at Team Gallery, which no longer exists. But Jose at Team Gallery really saw something in my work, basically that I was a closeted person. And he really loved that space as a creative space, I think, and really was another person in my life that encouraged me and pushed me along and like, you know, finally put my work up in, in Chelsea, which is a big yeah, moment big for me, yeah, of big course. deal. And then, um, yeah, eventually 2005 or six, I applied to Yale and I was working at Frankie's restaurant in Brooklyn. I'll never forget the day. And in uh, um, Carroll Gardens, in Carroll Gardens, yeah. I was like one of their their first waiters. Um, <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. But there, and it was a cool place to work. But also, like, I kind of lied to get the job. You know, I was like, yeah, I have waiting experience, but I like totally didn't. And, but I had it was great. I met all these, you know, Taryn Simon, who I worked for for a bit, would come in, and like the whole Schnabel family, like all these. It was very, very New hard, York. Yeah. Very New York and very hard to work and serve all these people. But also, like, I would never take those years away for anything. I learned so much about the world through that. And I still think about it every day. Like, I really enjoyed that <laughs> kind of work. And I remember it was like the restaurant was closed because Hillary Clinton was having some type of like benefit lunch at Frankie's outside. And I was working it. And my mom like called the restaurant and was like, David, we just got a letter from Yale. (laughs) And can I open it for you? Strangely, it was sent to my mom, my mom's home address in Woodstock, not to me in New York, because I don't know, I was probably paranoid about mail in New York. So my mom opened the letter, I got into Yale, and I was like, so elated and so excited and just like dreams manifested. And, and I, I, I want, that was the only grad school I applied to at that time, 2006 and seven, it was just like the Yale girls. Like there was like this entire amazing energy around that, that program that I wanted to uh, be at, you know, Philip Lurka de Corsia, Gregory Crudson, just like, there's like this entire yeah faculty, yep. faculty, Todd Papa George. Like it was just this amazing time there. And I, I got in and I told Hillary Clinton. <laughs> oh my God, that's awesome. <laughs> Which I never will forget. Like, I was like, it's so nice to meet you, Hillary. I just get, found out I got into Yale. <laughs> she <was> like, <laughs> and she was like, congratulations, that's wonderful. I'm like, thank you so much. I'm like, it's the art school. It's not really Yale, but, um, but yeah, it's still Yale. That's so great. yeah, I went to Yale and it was wild wild two years that i don't remember much about it was all kind of a blur but i came out in my first crit and um that was an important moment for me this i don't think would ever happen it's like very like not happens in graduate programs i think today but yeah my work was on the walls and like philip larkin of course it was like so are you gay 
are you like ambivalent to being gay? And um, I kind of just like sat there for a moment and was like, yeah, I'm gay. He's like, is that the first time you're saying it? I'm like, yeah, it is. Wow. <laughs> and yeah, it was like a round of applause and it was like some tears and I, they were like, he's like, great, now go make some good work. <laughs> you know, like it was kind of, a, it, they were rough. It was hard. It was like kind of what I needed and all that I ever could ask for in like a graduate program at that time in my life. It was supportive, but like really tough love. And for me, it was wonderful. For a lot of other people, it's really pretty hard, I think, on them. So, but for me, I went there with this kind of energy of using the camera to find out something deeper about myself. Um, I kind of hid behind the camera for many years and like most photographers do and still do, but I kind of used it as this tool for discovery, which, which is kind of what I kind of always go back to. Like it, it showed, it kind of laid bare my, my entire life and my, and my, fears and my dreams and my fantasies until finally it became like the reality so the camera i held like as a sacred tool i still do but it's kind of my it's kind of why where my love of film and analog technology was born from because i really do believe in magic and and i'm just kind of like that that i'm that, I'm that type of photographer it's powerful yes it is. I agree. Did you do your first big body of work, Birth and Futureverse, at Yale? Yeah. So I started uh, my first big body of work, Birth and Futureverse, pretty much, I think, towards the end of my second year. It was my considered my thesis, uh-huh. but it was kind of a culmination of two years, but really mostly the second year of my, second year of my program there, I started taking, I took my first landscape photograph and I took it pretty soon after uh, the death of my closest friend at the time, uh, which is very sudden, unexpected, but also, um, you know, a friend that was struggling with addiction, but we were all so naive and just in this same world together that we didn't really see uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's that young, mm-hmm. young New York downtown energy that, that kind of Grap, she grew up there. My friend who had passed away, Lily, she was, you know, there's a handful of friends. When I left New York, I was kind of, to rewind a little bit, I was around this group of downtown New York artists and it was pretty wild time in New York and a lot of drugs and a lot of partying and a lot of like bad boy art, a lot of straight white guys running the scene, but also yeah. like Ryan McGinley, who was, you know, a really close friend or you know a close friend in my life at that time and um and we all kind of hung around each other and dash snow and all these people that were really nice and warm and, and for me like as in this new community in new york so i was kind of embraced by them but also i left to go to grad school so i kind of right. escaped yeah. escaped that whole kind of scene and i'm um, very grateful i did because i think it my life changed yeah for the better and um when I got to Yale, I just stayed in close touch with a lot of those friends, though, and I'd go back to New York a lot, you know, the close proximity of New Haven to New York. But Lily was deeply kind of entrenched in that world, and it was shocking and really devastating for me. Lily helped me come out in many ways, and um, I lost her overnight. You know, she was like, come stay the night with me. I was like, I have to work on my thesis. I can't leave grad school. I have to finish this. And she overdosed. I found out and was yeah, really it's, devastated. It's and, devastating, yeah. 
And I mean, just to lose somebody at that age and, and that time in your life when you're undergoing a lot, um, it was hard. So, but it also literally sent me within days, my mom's were like, you know, what do you need to, what can we do to make you feel better? I was like, I don't know. I think I just need to like go out West, <laughs> like go do something alone outdoors. Like I feel so terrible here. So they helped me with one of their credit cards to buy a ticket and head out to California and rent a car and drive all the way up the West Coast. And I took my first landscapes out there. And it was all, again, using the camera as this kind of means to find something really deep in myself, but also like this whole understanding of birth and death and life and nature uh, started to really unfold and manifest itself in me. Well, it's, it's interesting because we, we haven't really talked about what your type of work you're known for or whatnot, but I'll just say that sort of burst on the scene with these incredibly colorful, this this extraordinary color palette. Most of your pictures are, are monochromatic, but in these incredible colors where you alter the color of the landscape, it's, it's what you're probably most known for. And there's, you know, I was thinking, and now I'm thinking about this in relation to the loss of your very close friend and that anguish. I was thinking about how when I was doing some background on you and I, I had read about, you know, how the AIDS crisis affected you losing all these these young men who were probably in the prime of their lives, friends of your moms and in, in the community and knowing you were gay and, and, and putting those things together and how traumatizing and, and just confusing that must have been, you know, but you make such ecstatic work. I mean, the work is just so ecstatic and so joyful in, in mm. so many ways, even when it's about ecological destruction, which I know a lot of the work is about, but it still maintains this incredible ecstasy. And, you know, and then I was just thinking about you know, your friend and you, you go and you start again, it's just an interesting because of course, some people would respond to these things by making very dour right, work, right. but you, you seem to have, you know, you're pushing back against that with these, this incredible vibrancy and this incredible life, the life force of, right. of color, which is really sort of extraordinary. I mean, I don't know if I'm sure you've thought about that, but just... Yeah, I mean, it's always helpful to hear someone else say it because it's totally true, though. It's it's really... Um, I think that because of a lot of that darkness that I experienced in childhood from, I think, the AIDS crisis and kind of being in the closet and, and not, you know, coming to terms with myself in many ways, art became like this escape for me to kind of live this vicarious life that's mm -hmm. filled with like the most extreme devout earthly otherworldly magical existence that um mm -hmm. i didn't i didn't really maybe get to experience as a kid or even maybe in this lifetime like for me it's my work is extremely personal so it's also my work basically stemmed from loss you know so right. that's kind of that's how i began I first used a camera to kind of uncover and, and tell the story of my own coming out and my own family and those people close to me. Like I took all these photographs of my mom's, which was like a big deal for me when I was at RISD and showed those pictures, which was part of my process, I think. And then uh, 
I think that once I got to graduate school, it was kind of, all right. It was like basically use this two years to kind of push through a lot of things that you're going through and like wash it out. Like this is a good place to test everything. And by the end of it, this body of work, Birth and Futureverse, was this kind of culmination of portraits, self-portraits, landscapes, abstractions, all shot on film, all with different cameras. Mind you, at the same time, I was working very closely uh, with Richard Benson, who is the dean for the, the School of Art, incredible photographer, printer. Aperture just had a new book. Uh, he recently passed away, and they just made this great book about Richard Benson and his teachings and all these artists that were inspired. And I mean, he inspired everyone, but uh, he was also known just, as really a master printer. Master printer. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. a genius, a yeah. true genius. Um, and he was a dean for the School of Art. So the photography program while he was there was especially. You know, the favorite child, <laughs> a kind of, it felt like that. And I didn't even, I just naively, I didn't even know when I got there who Richard Benson was. I just, I, I just kind of came into there like swirling around and just kind of was like, oh, these incredible people in, in retrospect were so formative and helpful because I found this printing process, like this monochrome printing process that you were just describing, which I still do to this day is I think of it as a unorthodox kind of printing, creative printing process where alternative process maybe is is somehow some, mm-hmm. some people have described it, um, mm-hmm. where I basically use color film and I kind of push the, the cyan, magenta, and yellow filters in the color enlargers, which are hard to come by now, but these enlargers basically measure, th- there's a filtration of of each of those colors that make up, you know, the natural color of the negative and you kind of filter the light through the negative onto the paper to find your, you know, natural perfect color. But once I kind of understood that in at RISD when I kind of took my color classes and understood how natural color, perfect color printing works, I, I kind of, one thing they always tell you is never touch the cyan filter. Like, just don't touch cyan. It will mess with your color. So by the time I got to Yale, everybody was shooting. Most people were shooting film and printing digitally, a mm-hmm. lot of large format. Mm-hmm. And I was just like one of the last people. There's a few of us, but one of the last using the color enlargers and the color darkroom. And I was like the, one of the lab monitors. So I really got to spend a lot of time in there alone and kind of break the machine and fix it and like take the enlarger apart and put it back together and like make my own mural printing, use that cyan dial. Like I just like went for it. I did everything that I'm not supposed to do. I broke down all of the rules that I (laughs) wrote down and I found this like beautiful way to print that was like basically creating this filter of color over my color negative. I tried it in black and white. It didn't work. It felt like it was very uh, washed out and I felt like using the color film actually captures all these different levels of color and using the filters, I can kind of push it to this extreme before the negative actually breaks down. Because if you push it over the top, then all of your shadows become muddy and all this, you know, very technical stuff, but it just, everything kind of can start becoming this not vibrant, saturated, monochrome color. So I found this sweet spot of where I can find these a tonal range within one color. Sometimes there's another color that comes through. Like if you have a really blue sky, you can't really change that blue. And if the landscape is kind of greenish. So I push that to like a chromatic extreme and find this new space to look at photographs in. 
so I started doing that and I kind of took off with that. And the color became like, kind of captured all this magic and spirituality and, and energy that I was trying to record on film, but kind of lost when I took the picture. If that makes sense. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, if you're standing in front of something really beautiful and grand as like a massive mountain face and you take a photograph of it, it's like nothing, nothing compares to being in front of that mountain, like at sunrise with no one around and alone with your thoughts. And that whole uh, kind of energy put into taking that photograph. And in many ways, I was like, well, how can I relive that through and share that with people through the experience of looking at a photograph? So I started making them really big and changing their color, which to me kind of felt like actually finding their color, like Mm -hmm. not really, like I was like, this color already exists and this is what this mountain face wants its color to be in today. (laughs) It felt like drag. It felt like performance. It felt like opera. It felt like very big dramatic and and over the top, Mm -hmm. making these really large scale, really vibrant, really colorful photographs. And I think I kind of took off with that and never really, never really stopped. You know, one thing that's really obvious about you that I I love is that you're really a maker. I mean, there are photographers who, you know, are very invested in the, you know, output, but less invested in the process. But but you're, you are a true maker. I mean, I just, I love hearing you talk now and I've loved reading about your process because it's clear how much joy you derive from it. And I just think, God, David's so lucky because he's in love with the whole thing, like from beginning yeah. <laughs> to end. He, he's he's having this absolutely, this sort of love affair. And, and that's just really incredible. And, you know, we should all be jealous of that because God how hmm. how unusual that is it is unusual huh I think there's something like Ansel Adams said about the um the negative is the score and the print is the performance and it's something yeah, I think great. about yeah I think about it all the time because it's also like a lot of what Adams was doing I've like mind over this process this mm-hmm. you know his zone system his entire devotion to the negative and the camera and the print and and the landscape and 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 how he approached it and did something like revolutionary you know like i felt like i understood something really deep about what he was talking about you know and i and i wanted to like i think in my own life and and how i how i found myself taking landscape photographs years later i think about this idea as the print is the performance and it was like I feel so much at times like a performance artist. Like I feel like I'm, and it's a lot of it goes on unseen where it's like, I'm out doing this thing across the West and finding these places and sleeping in my truck and, you know, loading my film at these campgrounds and all these things that I, I just didn't imagine I, that I would be doing, but it, I kind of fell into it naively in, in a strange way, you know, like, like my friend Lily had passed away I went out to go take landscape pictures and really the landscape pictures are when I started making this monochrome printing process and these landscapes really started to come to life, you know, in this, Mm -hmm. in this other way that anything, any, any other work I was doing felt like it was 
maybe too self-involved, like or too, as I've gotten older and the, as the environment has, we're, we're living through an ecological disaster. I, what I can do as an artist, what I'm meant to do is to be out here in the Southwest where climate change is happening way more rapidly than other places and kind of be this communicator and, and deliver something deeper about the earth and what's happening. But to get there, you know, it, it only happened because I was really, I guess I have to kind of rewind because, it, you know, the first landscapes I took, yes, were in graduate school, but then I kind of went through all these years of, of kind of trying to figure out how to make that work while living in New York, which... Mm-hmm. Hard. Which felt fake. Yeah, like it felt like I'm like, well, I guess I can fly to the desert and rent a car and drive and go take my pictures. So I would do that. I did that for years. And then I just felt like, you know, all these great Western landscape artists, they lived in it. Like they breathed it. They woke up to it. They literally became one with the thing. Like Ansel. And I know you love Georgia O'Keeffe. And, and yeah. And Weston is a was an influence, I think, and Minor White, Minor White um, yeah. and Dorothea Lang. Like I love all these these photographers that were yep, the Westerners working. Yeah, the Westerners, and and you know all the problems that that come up with their work too. I think I, I've gotten to like understand even deeper living out here. You know, like mm-hmm. but that really did motivate me to kind of become to become one with my work mm-hmm. to really because I felt like. Ultimately, that's that's how their work became so powerful. Well, Any well I just want to underline that for a second because I think there's like a, a a theme running through this conversation, which is your absolute dedication to every part of the process. And I think that that's really important. You know, nothing's sort of phoned in or half-assed. It's like, right, you right. know, you're so dedicated to every single aspect, soup to nuts, and, and it really shows in the work, which is so, so thoughtful and, you know, so rigorous. And, and, and so I think that that's a really important lesson. Yeah, I think it's this kind of working class, blue collar thing kind of also that like was ingrained in me as a, as a kid, you know, like, I, and which I'm very grateful for. I, I do feel like it's like that mixed with some really strange occurrences throughout my childhood, throughout my 20s, throughout my 30s, into my, I'm 41 now, being outside and having some really deep emotional, um, spiritual connections to the land that are hard for me really to describe and explain, but they come through with the work. And I think that that's kind of, as I get closer to it, as I devote myself 100% to to doing it and living it and breathing it and sleeping outside and, and carrying this <laughs> really, I use an 8x10 film camera, so it's, you know, I broke my so back hot. over it. Right. Yeah, I've, I've physically exhausted my body from it. But it also like pushes me like I now I, you know, I go see a trainer and I, I work up to going on little uh, treks and expeditions when I can to go out and make my work. But as I get older, my body's like getting like I did it. So again, like naively many years ago, because I didn't know what I was really doing. I was just kind of this East Coast hippie kid, like living at their California dream, mm-hmm. you know, and like literally seeing Yosemite and Sequoia and all these places for the first time with an eight by 10 camera, like 
what am I, how did I get here? What am I doing? And then I started to kind of understand the history. So I left New York in 2012, moved to LA after I had my first big show in New York, which was many years in the making. It was called Astral Desert, Mm -hmm. where I kind of took all these large format photographs of terrain in the West, mostly in Utah and New Mexico and mural printed them really large scale and um, used this vibrant color to kind of wash over each picture. So made them larger than life, had this amazing exhibition that was just like a dream come true. And my whole family came and felt like really the beginning of, of something deep with the earth for me. So I was ready to leave New York and go kind of get closer to the work and not have to take an airplane to go take my pictures and um, lived in LA for about 10 years, which was pretty wild time to, to be there. It was, it was kind of like 2012 was kind of like this, there's a little exodus from New York, it felt like, and that kind of continued on for a bunch of years. But I was there during a good time and a lot of, I don't know, I had I had a really exciting few years in California and just would get in the car and drive all the way up north. Like I just got to explore the state and live yeah, all over in those great. incredible national parks and state parks and really got to understand how to use the 8x10 camera in that time. And also it really began my journey into understanding how the West has been seen, uh, photographed, shaped, manifest destiny. It's like this entire historical kind of undoing in my own life. I began to understand things a lot deeper, what, what I was actually doing by going to Yosemite and taking these pictures and, and like that my footsteps were kind of retracing these Mm -hmm. forebears and kind of queering that and the power of, of queering a space and being outdoors and making this work as a queer person. And, and it all kind of came full circle, you know, like I began to talk about it and to understand what I was doing. And, and it became kind of strangely in, you know, in this little genre of landscape, historical Western landscape photography, large format. Um, it's kind of niche, but it also is definitive of a lot of our history and photography, American history. So, you know, it became this place where I could really start talking about it because I kind of understood something deep about it, you know, but also understood the issues with the West. And and I'm still learning and uncovering what all that means and what I'm doing, but that's part of the beauty of the journey and and figuring out as you do it. Oh, yeah, of course. Let me ask you, Something, I'm just dying to get the answer to this. Um, (laughs) You are so, you are a real object person, as am I. Very attached to the print in a frame on the wall and the the object. And, you know, I live with a, as people listen to the podcast know, because I say it all the time, I live with a ton of photography on the walls and I live with a ton you know, hundreds and hundreds or thousands of prints from my artists. And mm. and I love those prints. You know, I joke around that sometimes I get a new, like a beautiful silver print or, you know, a beautiful new print from an artist. I, I just feel like I almost want to eat it. Like it's just mm. so, it's <laughs> like it looks so delicious. Yeah. But with your work, your work is because you do print often very large. The object is so dominant. How does that work for you when you make a book? Mm, How does that loss of that sort of, not just the object, but the materiality? 
the paper, yeah. the process, the the final object, the the materials are so important to you. Is there any sort of feelings of sorrow when you when it? Yes, yes, <laughs> the, definitely. There. I mean, we, I've really gone to the depths of trying to understand how to reproduce my work in books. Yeah, and, very hard. And yeah, it's really hard. And um, but also, you know, I'm so grateful to have books. And and I've had about four, five books published in my work and each one is its own little kind of they're like little children for me and yeah um, and they're different right i mean that's how you have to think about them they're not the prints they're different they're not the prints and they're totally different and and i have to kind of accept that it's a hard thing for me it's really hard because also like my work it's like i've always had really positive responses when people see my pictures in exhibitions but you know who can go to exhibitions, people that live in New York, that live in LA. Yeah, it's very limited. You know, like, and like who has the time to go to an art show? Who has it? So it's like, I have to, I kind of had to like let go of that a couple years ago and just like live with like, well, if people want to find my work, they can maybe get a book if they can afford the book. If they can't, they they can look online. And if they can look online, they kind of glow at least with the screen behind it. <laughs> I just have to accept that. Yeah, you know, no, they look kinda... I, you do. I mean, at the end <laughs> of the day, the book reigns supreme for all of the reasons you just said. Because yeah. the thing is, and I talk to my artists about this all the time, it's like, you know, you're aching for an exhibition and, and I understand that. But an exhibition is a six-week generally, unless it's in a museum, but right. happening and very, very few people see it. And not the case with the book books travel everywhere it's it's really exciting but i just was, it's intimate it's yeah, so it's, intimate i'm very i'm a, a, such a huge huge proponent and lover of of the photo book but yet i definitely was thinking about this with you because you know you you've put sand actual sand on the on the on the photographs, on the photographs. Surface, yeah. you know there is real there's something there's a tactile yeah very to a lot tactile of the, a lot of work, i've seen yeah. your work in person so i my that was my experience seeing it so let me ask you we're, we've, we're going long so let me ask you what did it feel like when all of a sudden you got picked up by salon 94 and which is a, a great gallery in new york and and all of a sudden you're having a career i mean what, what did that feel like for a kid from Woodstock and from a working middle class family. I think anyone that knew me when I was really young, meaning like late teens, early 20s, even in college and in graduate school, like I've had that kind of like strange drive, ambition to kind of to live a life where I can support myself through art. I come from a school of, I think, art that is really disciplined and really mm-hmm. strict and That's really clear. really um kind of obsessive compulsive and i embrace that about myself because mm-hmm. it goes along with the medium it goes along with eight by ten it goes yeah. along with printing it goes it's like i have a very particular person and you know it's funny growing up like the way i did in this kind of free form childhood uh, that's super open and and, you know, around kind of hippie culture in the 80s and 90s. Also, when I was a kid, I was like gelling my hair, like and brushing it, like to have a perfect hairstyle with like a perfect turtleneck. I mean, I went through a phase of this, like just mm-hmm. weird things I did as a kid that like, 
I think are still part of who I am, you know, part of pursuing your art at a, at a young age, pursuing your work and, and living it and believing in it and like developing thick skin around it, going through graduate programs, going through undergraduate programs, tell, being told no, like hundreds of times, like it really does make you kind of push further and dig deeper and find something more in yourself to keep going because I mean, I definitely have days where I'm like, I should just be a chef. Like, I just want to cook food. I, I just want to serve people. I want to do something. I want to do something that like helps the world. And then I have like, you know, my close community friends that are like, your pictures do help people. And I'm like, well, do they? Like those that can see them. Like I, I struggle with a lot of things about accessibility and, and like, you Me know. Me too. We'll, we'll have a long talk about that when we hang out. Yeah. And, I'll, you know, like Salon 94, what a dream. That was like, an amazing 10 years. They just closed. So, Oh, wow. I didn't even know that. Yeah. So they closed uh, maybe this last year, which has been, you know, it's a challenge when you don't live in New York any, anymore. And your big New York, amazing gallery. That's, it was a beautiful chapter of, of like art world in New York, I yeah, think, because yeah. Jeannie Greenberg, who started the gallery with this woman, Fabienne and Alyssa, they, they kind of did something that I think is kind of the model at this point for like, you know, they were representing women, people of color, queer people from the beginning. That's how the mm -hmm. gallery started mm -hmm. and it was all run by women. So it was just like, this feels like home to me. This is mm -hmm. like being with my yeah, moms right. and like, I just love it. I remember when Jimmy DeSana was brought on, I was just like, could the world get any closer for me? Like this is like Jimmy DeSana's work was like, such a huge inspiration to me when I was figuring out a lot of my own color work in the early days of my process. Like he was kind of this underground, incredible eighties photographer in New York that, you know, died of AIDS and terrible, um, loss, but his work was extremely formative. And then when Jeannie started, you know, representing his estate, I was like, this is the dream gallery for me. Like, this mm -hmm. is like bringing these worlds together from no, that's older generation yeah. to younger generation. And also, you know, they show a few photographers, but it's a lot of painting and a lot of sculpture. And I felt like my work really kind of grew in that space where yeah. it kind of lends itself to other forms of art, not just photography. And, you know, at the same time, I, I started working with my gallery in LA, which they've been amazing, awesome, Moran Moran. They're, they're open and they're growing and they're also doing incredible things out in California. But it is strange for me at this moment not to have a New York yeah. space because I do feel like bringing these landscapes to New York. I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing that feels better to me to be in the streets of New York and like walk into a gallery space and see this glowing. Yeah. California you know, <laughs> or, or, or like New Mexico, like anything right. like just yeah, the West, course. like seeing yeah, these landscapes that are like a respite. <laughs> exactly. And you know, especially as everything pretty much is politicized and endangered landscape wise. And so all the work that I'm, I'd be bringing into New York would be like, it would just feel so good for me. Cause I feel like I'm mm -hmm. like, I can open, I can give people a place to kind of pause and think about yeah. what's happening in the world, in the environment. And how do we fit into it? Like, how do we give mm -hmm. space to environmental disaster and, and, and think about it? And, and also like, you know, I'm really interested in how beauty can kind of be this like I'm not I'm not taking pictures of of like wildfires, you know. No, no, no. Have, you you have the you have the the quintessential first seduction before you sit us down and we have a hard talk. Yeah, exactly. Like I I really love what my work it's has the shown. The Trojan me. horse. I mean, it it's like 
I guess Ansel Adams used beauty in, in these ways as well. But like, mm-hmm. I'm interested in using like this, like new form of like this vibrant glowing picture that mm-hmm. like can radiate this energy that it just feels different than maybe what other photographers and landscape have brought us. But mm-hmm. through beauty, I think we can actually find some hope in like how to go forward in this new world that we're yep. living in. You know, Definitely. like, like I think beauty kind of can bring us together. It can move people in, in ways that like destruction really doesn't. I mean, I look at the newspaper every morning and like, I'm just paralyzed by yeah. everything that's crumbling in our world and culture and society. And so then I go to my studio to like make my work and I'm, and go outside and I'm so grateful that I get to be able to do what I do, you know, and like make these photographs and share them with people. So it's, it's a big part of the work for me. It's becoming more and more important that my, my pictures are, you know, there's like a democracy to like how, how accessibility and universal our land and this land and this troubled landscape and, you know, the answers are kind of all within it. So it's it's really powerful. And I think it, it can be that for people. But I do need a gallery space to, to make that happen, strangely. <laughs> I don't always. Like, I think it's just, like, what I've leaned on for years to have that yeah, space. Yeah, I, I, th- I don't think you do. I think you're, you're doing it in many different ways. But on that note, I'm going to say until part two. Okay. I love that. (laughs) David, thank you so much for for talking with me today. I've loved every minute of it. Oh, me too. It's been really my pleasure. And um, thanks for listening. And, you know, I feel like my whole life story is kind of now on a podcast, which is, is. (laughs) it's personal. I don't know if that's what you knew you were getting into, but it's, it's like, it's, it's perfect. That's, but you know, it's like that's the personal. The podcast. It's like personal is the political. That's just the life I I live. Well, I'm I'm happiest having these types of conversations. So you've made me happy, and I'm pretty sure oh, the listeners <laughs> feel the same way because that's what they say when they write to me. So oh, I that's good to hear. Yeah, man. all good. So thank you so much. Until next time. Thank you, Sasha. I I appreciate it. Okay. Bye, David. All right. Be well. Take care. You too. Thank you. Photo Work with Sasha Wolf is produced by me, Michael Chauvin Dalton of Real Photo Show. The associate producer is Taylor Selsback, and the executive producer is Sasha Wolf. Our theme music is by J. Walter Hawks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and rate us with all the stars available on your listening platform. 